Good morning. Sorry about the delay. A bit more. Yep. <laughs> I'm all set. And I'm just reading chapter three. After these things, Kay Asaurus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to, ha and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples in every province in its own script and every people in its own language. 
It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed by the king's signet ring. Later, sorry, letters were sent to couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the documents was to be issued as a decree to every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued to Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Shirley. We're doing really long passages recently, partly because we're in a narrative book, a historical book. And so it's good for us to read some of that along so that we have the context of what we're speaking in and what we're talking about today. And so we're in the story of Esther. We've had Esther become queen. We talked last week a little bit about Mordecai. We're going to go back to that in just a minute. And we're now at a place where we get the um, antagonist of the story, Haman. And Haman is going to come in, and his whole desire is to destroy all of the Jewish people. Now, one of the cool things that happens in the celebration of Purim, which is a celebration, one of the celebrations that um, the Jewish people continue to do even to this day, and it's instituted in this book, actually, at the last chapter, we get to see how it gets instituted, is when they hear Haman's name, they all boo as loud as they can around the celebration. As a matter of fact, they dress up, they do all sorts of fun things. It's one of the favorite festivals, actually, for them to celebrate. But when they hear Haman's name, they boo. And, and there's a reason for that, obviously, because he's trying to kill them all, and he doesn't succeed. We know this because we can read the book, and we can look back in 2020, right, hindsight, and go, yep, okay, we know what happens. But they boo him. You know, there's only a few people in my life that I've ever felt like I should boo. And most of those people, I like to boo because they've hurt me in some way. Now, this maybe has never happened to you, but I have been broken up with. Like I was dating someone, and then they all of a sudden decided that maybe I wasn't the person that they wanted to be dating anymore, and so they had broken up with me. I felt like saying boo to them because they broke up with me. One of the most unique ways that we get broken up to, and I know this has never happened to any of you, and it's probably only happened to me, is that the person will start off by telling you they don't feel like things are going well, and, they, and then they'll say this classic line, but it's really not about you. It's all about me. It's really not a problem with you. It's actually all about me. And in the back of my mind, I always thought, well, that can't be right. <laughs> Clearly, it's not about you. Clearly, it's all about me. And the reality in our world today is that we tend to think about ourselves more often than thinking about others. Do you realize that one of the fastest growing industries in the world right now, a $2 billion industry, is life coaches. 
That's you hiring someone to tell you how to be a better you. That's a lot of money going out because we feel like we want to be better. Now, don't get me wrong. Self-improvement's good. We should be thinking that way. But what tends to happen in that is we move to a place where it's about me, myself, and I. We ask questions like, how does this affect me? How do I feel about this? How does it challenge me? How does it give me pleasure? How does it bring me comfort? How does it make me better? And in the risk of turning you off and causing you not to listen to another thing I say today, I just want to let you know that it's really not about you. And it's not about me. And I think in this particular part of the story of Esther, we see three ways that it is not just about you. And we're going to look at those three ways today. We're going to look at the fact that self-focus leads to destructive pride. We're going to look at the fact that self-brokenness leads to communal brokenness. And we're going to look at the fact that self-plans lead to hopeless living. So let's jump into this idea of self-focus leading to destructive pride. I want you to look real quickly at the two main people that we're talking about in this passage. Haman and the king. And both of them are filled with pride. They want to be recognized in some form or fashion but actually in different ways. So Haman's pride recognizes that he wants to be honored and he wants to be elevated. He wants to be seen as worthy and as the greatest among all people. And that's the reason why when he's walking through and he gets elevated to this position and one person, one person doesn't bow down to him. That he himself actually didn't recognize not bowing down to him. Recognize this. There are lots of people bowing down to him. Mordecai's in the back, not bowing down to him. Haman doesn't recognize this until the people that know Mordecai come to Mordecai and go, hey, why aren't you bowing down? Shouldn't you be bowing down? And Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, there's a reason for that, and we'll get to it. And they go, but you really should be bowing down. I mean, we've been told by the king that we should be bowing down. And Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to bow down. And then to be helpful... They go to the king and say, Mordecai, who happens to be a Jew, is not bowing down to you. And so instead of going, well, I'll teach Mordecai a lesson. I'll go talk to him. I'll reason with him and make sure that he understands that the king has said that you should bow down to me. I'll remind him of how much honor I deserve. He says, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to kill everybody that's part of his clan. See, his desire to be elevated and to be recognized, his pride is so much so that just because one person didn't bow down to him, he wants to annihilate everybody. You talk about destructive pride. Now, the king is a little different. The king's desire and where his pride resides is that he wants to be liked. He wants to be seen as a good person, as a person who can be liked. He, he wants to seek approval from all those that are around him. What does he do? So more, uh, uh, Haman comes to him and he says, there's this group of people. They don't follow our rules. They don't follow our laws. Now understand that in this, in this province, under his rule, anything was allowed. 
right? He, he really didn't persecute anybody. He really didn't look to take anybody down. He let all sorts of worship happen. And here Haman comes and says, there's these people, they're different than us, and they worship differently to us, and they don't follow your laws. So what I would like to do is take care of them, and I would like to give you money. As a matter of fact, the way that the story goes is he promises them more money than the king actually has. Now think about that. Haman says, I'll give you more money than you already have. Now how does Haman have that money? He doesn't. He's lying. He's being deceitful. Now the king, because his pride rests in approval, doesn't investigate, doesn't question, doesn't say where are the facts. He takes off his signet ring and says, you have the power. Why? Just so a lying, deceiving, manipulative little man that had just gotten raised up into power can be his friend, can look at him and recognize him and say, yes, I'm liked by Haman. Shouldn't have Haman already liked him for giving him the position that he had? See, what happens to us when we are so self-focused and we're so filled with pride is this self-focus brings us into isolation. It either causes us to be deceitful with people and to manipulate them so that we can be lifted up, or it causes us to be passive and receptive so that we don't actually have anything that we stand for. Because either our desire is to be recognized as powerful, our desire is to be recognized as light. And so either we are so held in our convictions that I am right, that we will tear down all sorts of relationships around us, that we don't give an opportunity to listen to alternative points of view, that we think, no, everybody has to believe the way I believe and do what I do and live the way that I live, or they're wrong, that it causes us to be separated, and that's pride. Or it moves us to the place where we have no convictions at all, that we never stand up for anything because I don't want to have conflict in my life and I don't want to receive uh, negative feedback from people and I don't want to be seen as obstinate or rude or mean. I just want to be liked and loved. And I would dare say that in our lives we probably vacillate between the two of those things. <laughs> we go back and forth in our self-focus, where we feel like, oh, I'm great and I'm mighty and everybody should recognize that. Oh, I don't think anybody likes me. I better please them. Why? Because we think it's about us. We think it's about us. So what about this identity of self-brokenness? This idea of sin that steps in? There's a couple of clues that we have here of why Mordecai does not want to bow down to Haman. And it all actually goes back years, years before Mordecai and Haman are actually even born, before they're even thought about. What we see happening here is a playing out of 1 Samuel 15, where Saul is told by God to go kill the king, a king of a foreign country, who is an ancestor of Haman. And God says to him, I want you to wipe them all out. Let me put a pen here. I'm working on a paper. I'm working on an understanding of what it means when God's wrath is shown in this way in the Old Testament. It's hard for us to hear 
this identity of God saying, wipe out all these people. Because what we know is the God who is revealed in Christ completely, right? What we said in our call to worship, that the image of this invisible, immutable, praiseworthy, awesome God is fully manifest himself in Jesus Christ. And what we see about Jesus is that he's pursuing in his love, always, and faithful in his mercy, always. And that he himself decided to take all the wrath and put himself on the cross in obedience to God. But we have to deal with the Old Testament. And we have to deal with these places where God says, wipe them all out. And what does that mean? That's too long of a sermon, and I don't want to keep you in here that long. I want to tell you that we're working on it, and at some point, hopefully in the near future, we'll post something on our Facebook page that will answer some of those questions. And then maybe later on in some years when I feel much more confident about it, we might actually preach on it. But so what happens is Saul, who comes in and he's been told to wipe everybody out, doesn't do it. He sins. He breaks God's command. Instead, he keeps the king alive. Why? Because it's better to keep the king alive because you can ransom him off to other countries and get money. And he keeps all the best animals and all the best things. Why? Because they're good. And Samuel comes to him and he says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I haven't done anything wrong. Now, God had said, I'm going to destroy these people. Why? I'm going to destroy these people because when I was bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, they fought against them. So it goes even further back to when God's relentless pursuit of his people was bringing them to the place that he had called them to be, and they were fought against. And so Saul says, no, I didn't do anything wrong. And Samuel goes, you got the king alive and you got all his best things. I hear the bleeding of the sheep down the hill. These best sheep, oh, we're going to use them for sacrifice. And Samuel says, God doesn't care about your sacrifice. He cares about your obedience. So now, fast forward. And we have Mordecai, who is related to Saul. And Haman, who's related to the king. And so when Haman is elevated, Mordecai, who has no problem bowing down to a foreign king. How do we know that? Because he's been elevated and raised up into the kingdom. He wouldn't be able to do that if he wasn't bowing down to the king. But when Haman is elevated, it's personal. This is somebody who tried to wipe out my people before. He says, I can't do it. And Haman says, who's this Mordecai? Oh, he's a Jew? They tried to wipe my people out. And so the sins of the father and the sins of the father and the sins of the father are visited at this place. And the consequences are not just between Mordecai and Haman. They are spread out internationally. Because Haman says, I want to kill all the Jews. I want to kill every one of them. Our self brokenness leads to communal brokenness the reason why there are systemic injustices that happen into the world is because individuals live in their brokenness and it causes repercussions and ripples to follow through understand that there is no individual brokenness or sin there is particular sin and brokenness 
but it's not individual. You see, what happens is when I sin privately to myself, away from everybody else, only in my mind, when I think those little nasty, dirty thoughts of how great I am and why isn't everybody worshiping me? Or, oh, I just like to, to, to do this. Man, if I could only do that. Nobody knows about it. Nobody sees it. But if I let that thought fester and I don't take it to God, and it gives birth to desire. And desire gives birth to action. All of a sudden, that action now causes me to either have to get people on my side and think that it's not wrong. So in doing that, all of a sudden, I'm bringing other people into that deceit. I'm bringing other people. See, it's not individual anymore. Or I've got to hide it. So that nobody sees it because I recognize, because God has put in my heart that it's wrong. I recognize that it's wrong and what does it do? It causes me to shrink back. It causes me to step away from relationship. It causes me to live in isolation. And then people are around me wondering what's going on. Why do we miss Lee and the joy that he brings to our lives? <laughs> okay, maybe they say that part. Right, it causes isolation. And in doing that then, it seeps out. So that one little pebble ripples until it's a tsunami. That one little disobedience ripples until it's a tsunami coming to crash in on us. So we recognize that in our self-brokenness, it moves us to a place of communal brokenness. Now here's the last place that it's not about you. We didn't read the end of chapter 2. We talked about it a little bit last week, and we're going to talk about it right now. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai hears about this plot to kill the king. And Mordecai goes to Esther, and he says to Esther, there are people who are going to try and kill the king. You need to go save them. And Esther goes before the king and says, there are people who are trying to kill you. Mordecai, your servant, told me about it. And the king is spared, and those two guys are put to death. Kings normally elevate people who save their lives. Kings normally lift them into higher places, give them greater honor, bestow on them riches and wealth. What we see happen here is the king writes down Mordecai's name and puts it aside, and nothing happens. And then just a few short years later, Haman, his archenemy, for heritage and heritage and heritage and heritage, is elevated above him. Now you've got to think in your mind that Mordecai, Esther has become king, a uh, queen, right? And Mordecai now has saved the king's life. In some sense, you've got to think that Mordecai, in his mind, is thinking, we're set. We're set. Life is going to work out good for us. We're going to be recognized. I've got my cousin who's the queen. I've just saved the king's life. Things are going to be easy going for us here on out. It's 180 degrees different. <laughs> the king says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to have you all killed. The king says that because the king is the one who puts the edict out. Why? Because he's given the power to Haman. I had the great privilege yesterday of hearing John Anderson, former deputy prime minister. Now, you might not agree with his politics, and that's okay. 
but his life story is amazing. Because he talks about the fact that in his life, his mother died when he was three. And his dad kept he and his little sister there and watched over them. But then when he was ready to go to school, he went to boarding school in Sydney. And when he was back in 1970 over Easter break, he and his father were playing cricket. And his, da- his young sister was watching them play. And at that moment, John says that he finally got the ability to bat well. He had finally, and his dad was glowing. Yes, my son's finally gotten it. He's, he's come good. He's, he's going to be able to be a, a cricketer. And that's something that he was excited about. And his sister was playing and wasn't paying attention. And John cracked a ball just perfectly. And she saw it coming and she turned her head and it hit her in the back of the neck and she died instantly. John hadn't had a great life before then, but he thought things were getting better. And tragically, 180 degrees, everything began to fall apart. And what John says is that he asked three questions really quickly. The first thing that he said is, one, my childhood ended that day. And of course it would. But he said he had three questions. The one was, why suffering? Why does suffering come in? This was unintentional. This was not something that was going to happen. This shouldn't have taken place. It was innocent. The second question he asked is, does anybody understand this? Does anybody understand where I'm at? And the third question he asked is, is there any hope? And he said that it was only as he went back to school and he really could not deal well, but that the, the Anglican school that he went to, that there happened to be some really good Bible teachers there and they began to pour into his life and they brought him to an understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus' pursuit was in his life. And he said, look, suffering, I don't understand it. <laughs> it's a mystery. To this day, he doesn't know. But he says what he does know is that there is someone who has experienced it and understands it. There's somebody who has empathy, and that's in Jesus Christ, who has come along as the suffering servant to step into the place of our pain and to bring us into wholeness. And he says, of course, there's new hope because there is the resurrection of Jesus that brings hope, but also the community that he puts us into, which is the gathering of God's people all throughout the world that we see expressed here today. That they are people who will love and know and understand us and care for us and walk with us in these times. And we jump to Jeremiah and Isaiah where we hear about plans that God has to prosper us. And we can walk into the book of Ephesians where we see that before the foundations of the world, God knew us and chose us and brought us into his family. And he says, I've got works for you to do. And they are good works that will bring glory and honor to him. And we look at Romans 28, 28, where it reminds us that God works for good to those who love him. And sometimes those are just platitudes that ring in our ears because we're self-focused. Here's the thing that we recognize is that our self-plans lead to hopelessness because we don't have the wherewithal to know what is going on in the world. As smart as and intelligent as you all are, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But the creator of the world does. And he has a plan. And he is working it out. Mordecai and Esther, for sure, when Haman was elevated, felt like their world has fallen apart. It tells us that the province that, that Mordecai lived in went into chaos when the king 
sent this edict out. It didn't just affect them. It affected everybody. They couldn't quite figure out why the king all of a sudden wanted to kill a whole nation of people. Our worlds sometimes get twisted and turned upside down so quickly, whether it's a sickness or a relationship that's broken. And sometimes it's small and it's seemingly insignificant to us, but it brings us to the point of depression that we feel like we can't go on. I'm here to tell you, it's not about you. God has a plan for you. Oh. Oh. So it is about you. It is about you because it's about God's relentless, loving pursuit to bring you into whole relationship with Him and with yourself and with everyone else and with place. It is all about you because God knew you and created you and formed you to be His son or daughter. It is about you because God's the one who is orchestrating your steps and walking with you as you move through the ups and downs of life, those places where it turns 180 degrees and you feel like you can't go on. He is present there walking with you. It is about you because He promised to never leave you alone, to not forsake you, to be present and to walk and move with you. It is about you, not because you're some unique, special person who needs to be high and lifted up or liked by everybody else. It's about you because God, the Almighty, loves you. And so what's our response? Our response is to trust. Our response is to say, in all that I see, in all that I believe, when I get myself on the throne or when things happen in my life that flip them all upside down, when the generational sin of my family creeps in and begins to affect me because of addictions that we can't seem to shake loose, in all those things, I believe, God, that you love me and that you're good. And the beauty of it is he didn't leave us alone in it. He gave us each other. Because sometimes I'll say it and not believe it. But if you say it to me, if you proclaim it to me, it probably will get through my thick heart. Because that means somebody else believes it. And that's why God is so good to us. And so, it is about you. It is about his love for us. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to us. We thank you for your love for us. We want to be pursued by you. Please bring us into that pursuit. Let us slow down enough to trust you, to rest in you, and to know that we are set free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.